0: So, as a congregation, as we've been uh, reading through the one-year Bible together, uh, if you finish this week strongly, which you will do, then you're 25% of the way done. Right? If if I do my math correctly, three months in, 12 months a year, uh, one quarter of the way done. So, good, good on you for uh, for persevering so far. And we won't ask for a show of hands as to how many of you have actually. Kept up because it's 100%. Uh, so keep, keep going, keep going. You establish the habit, and uh, and you can do three months. You can do three more months. You can do three more, and you you can do this. You really can. Uh, and I would still encourage you, just on the off chance that you had pneumonia for a month and were bedridden and couldn't read anything, uh, wherever the bookmark is, just keep working forward. If if it takes. 18 months if it takes two years, as long as you're consistently reading more than before, just keep going, keep going. You can do it. This morning we're going to look at uh, Numbers chapter 33 uh, together. Numbers 33. It's kind of like a bit of a pop quiz as you, as we go through this chapter, you'll see how much of these places recall the stories to you. Numbers 33, this is the word of God. Here are the stages in the journey of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt by divisions under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. At the Lord's command, Moses recorded the stages in their journey. This is their journey by stages. The Israelites set out from Ramesses on the 15th day of the first month, the day after The Passover. They marched out defiantly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, for the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. The Israelites left Ramesses and camped at Succoth. They left Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. They left Etham turned back to Pi-Haharoth, to the east of baal Zephon and camped near Migdal. They left Pi-Haharoth and passed through the sea into the desert. And when they had traveled for three days in the desert of Etham, they camped at Mara. They left Mara and went to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there. They left Elam and camped by the Red Sea. They left the Red Sea and camped in the desert of Sin. They left the desert of Sin and camped at Dafka. They left at Dafka and camped at Elush. They left Elush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. They left Rephidim and camped in the desert of Sinai. They left the desert of Sinai and camped at kibroth hatava They left kibroth Hatava and camped at Hazaroth. They left Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. They left Rithma and camped at Rimmon perez They left Rimin-Perez and camped at Libna. They left Libna and camped at Rissa. They left Rissa and camped at Kehelatha. They left Kehelatha and camped at Mount Sefer. They left Mount Sefer and camped at Harada. They left Harada and camped at Makhaloth. They left Makhaloth and camped at Tahath. They left Tahath and camped at Terra. They left Terra and camped at Mithka. They left Mithka and camped at Hashmona. They left Hashmonah and camped at Mazaroth. They left Maseroth and camped at Beni Jacon. They left Beni Jacon and camped at Hor Hagadgad. They left Hor Hagadgad and camped at Jotbatha. They left Jotbatha and camped at Abranah. They left Abranah and camped at Ezien Geber. They left Ezien Geber and camped at Kadesh in the desert of Zin. They left Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor on the border of Edom. At the Lord's command, Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor where he died on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. The Canaanite king of Arad who lived in the Negev Negev of Canaan heard that the Israelites were coming. They left Mount Hor and camped at Zalmanah They left Zalmanah and camped at Punan. They left Punan and camped at Oboth. They left Oboth and camped at Ai-Aberim on the border of Moab. They left Ai-Aberim and camped at Gad. They left Gad and camped at Alman-Diblethaim. They left Alman-Diblethaim and camped in the mountains of Abiram near Nebo. They left the mountains of Abiram and camped on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. There on the plains of Moab they camped along the Jordan from Beth-Jeshemoth to abel Shatim. On the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and their cast idols, and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Distribute the land by lot according to your clans. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance, and to a smaller group, a smaller one. Whatever falls to them by lot will be theirs. Distribute it according to your ancestral tribes. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live. And then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. Well, before we uh, consider this passage, let's pray. Our Father, we would ask that uh, this morning, for the honor of Your name's sake, and for the sake of Your Son Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We would ask that your spirit will teach us your word, that you'll feed us upon it, that you'll strengthen us by it, and that you will give us uh, ears to hear and hearts that are moved to obedience. Father, so I would pray that for every one of us here, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of uh, the week that we're coming from, I pray that you will meet us with grace. And I pray that you will minister deeply and profoundly in everyone's heart. Lord, there are many uh, who we know and who we love who are not able to be out with us this morning uh, due to health and other ailments. We pray that you will strengthen and comfort them wherever they are uh, and that even now as we draw close to you through your word, I pray that you will draw them close to yourself uh, either by uh, radio uh, or by uh, television, uh, ministry, Or even, Lord, if they are incapable at this point of reading, just to bring verses to mind. uh, Verses that they have read uh, for decades, perhaps. Uh, Words that are treasured in their hearts by your Spirit. Feed them on that treasure uh, that you have buried and sunk deep into their souls as your children over the years they have walked with you. Lord, where there is discouragement, I pray that you will bring comfort and encouragement. Where there is weakness, I pray that you will give strength. And yet, Lord, we also recognize that sometimes it is precisely in our discouragement and in our weakness that your grace is seen to be the most sufficient of all. And so we pray that you will do what is right. Uh, we pray that you will minister to your children as exa- exactly in the way that they need, wherever they are. And for those of us who are here, we pray that your Spirit will mightily uh, work this morning. We pray that also for those uh, in the in the nursery, and for those with the children in Children's Church, may this be a time when you are honored. Uh, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so just, uh, just to reiterate something that Mary said, uh, we do have a Good Friday service at 10.30 on Friday. And would love to see you there as we worship uh, our Lord and remember uh, the cross of our Savior. And then on Easter Sunday at 9.30, we're going to be having a special communion service. And at 10.30, we're going to be having our Easter Sunday service and a baptism. So we're quite looking forward to celebrating all of God's grace in different ways on the weekend. Now, there are momentous weekends in our lives. Hopefully, next weekend will be one of those in terms of worship. There are also a lot of weekends that we experience which are eminently Uh, forgettable. Uh, Probably the same with most of our days, with most of our moments. Uh, There are big events, and there are countless small events. Uh, When we look back at history, history, of course, is uh, in some ways a very arbitrary uh, record and recounting of things that we perceive to have been significant for us over time. Uh, There are events that we sort of share as a cultural heritage. Uh, Some things even become idioms. Uh, metaphors. You know, we can we can think of you know the the fall of the Berlin Wall in sort of recent history as is a very important date in history. We can think of 9/11. Uh, in, interesting enough, of course, the previous to 2001, uh, saying 9/11 in any cultural context would have meant nothing to anyone. Uh, but post 9/11, all we do is say the numbers and people understand what we're talking about. Uh, you can go on and on and on and on, uh, you know, back through history. 49 B.C., Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon. Uh, it was a major event uh, in history, something that we, we now share in terms of cultural framework, uh event celebrated by poetry and poets uh, of all descriptions. But really, more often than not, when you look back at your life, your life is just going to be a total assortment of very small moments. That's what it is, which is why if you fritter away your moments, you are unintentionally frittering away your life. That's what you're doing. So the way you choose to spend particularly your leisure moments will, in large part determine the outcome of your life. Uh, if, if you are continually in the habit of wasting time. Wasting time eventually equates to a wasted life. It's just what it does. Now, there are also big moments in our lives, sometimes good, sometimes bad, that you look back and say, this is sort of a a defining moment, or this was, you know, I came to a crossroads or whatever. Uh, You know, in philosophy and religion, uh, very often around the world, people talk about the path of life. This is a very, very common metaphor. You get this in Proverbs, uh, you get this in, in the teachings of Jesus, uh, you get this in, right at the very beginning in the Psalms. There is a path. Which path are you on? What's the trajectory of your life? This chapter records the trajectory or the path of Israel's life from Exodus to Promised Land. And so there are a lot of places here that we don't recognize, or at least we don't attach any significance to them at all. They're just places where Israel happened to camp. To Israel, this was significant, though. They had associations with all of these places. They they knew people who were buried at that campground when Israel moved on. They, They knew people who had grumbled and complained at that place and had been met by the judgment of God. They knew people who were bit by the fiery serpent but looked up and saw the bronze snake and were healed by God. Maybe they themselves were one of those people who could look back at that place, at that stage, and say, "I remember, you know, I remember the pain of the viper sinking its fangs into my leg, and then there was this snake up on a pole, and I looked, and the pain went away, and I was healed, and there was grace." Notice in verse two, the Lord commanded Moses to write this down. This was not Moses' idea. This was a direct command from the Lord. Which also means, simultaneously, because this is the word of God, that when the Lord commanded Moses to write it down, the Lord was also simultaneously, implicitly, commanding us to read it. This was his very word. So the question is, why you know this is not normally the sort of text that when we read for our devotions uh causes us to feel very devotional which is actually one of the biggest problems in how we approach the bible today one of the biggest problems with how we approach the bible today is that we when we come to the bible for devotions we want to cultivate a certain mood an emotional environment when we're reading, as we want the text to produce certain feelings in us. We want to feel close to God. We want to feel joy. We want to feel enthusiasm, or whatever. And then we find, as we work through the Pentateuch, that, that that's not always how we feel. And, and, and you get to verse 31 in this chapter and, and you wonder, well, maybe the next verse will make me feel warm and fuzzy, <laughs> right? Like, like, like maybe, maybe that must be just around the corner that I'm going to finish this chapter and I'm just going to feel spiritually happy. Because that's the goal. That's the goal in most of our devotional lives. It's to cultivate a certain emotional posture and frame of mind. That's one of the reasons why we don't persist in our Bible reading. Because we read chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, and that's just not the effect it has on us. Perhaps the right thing to do is to ask ourselves whether or not that's the effect it's supposed to have on us. Are we actually approaching the Bible on God's terms? Or are we demanding that the text satisfy us the way we want to be satisfied spiritually and emotionally, or else we put it aside? In other words, do we bring ourselves under the judgment of the text or we stand in judgment on the text? The Lord commanded Moses to write this down and in so doing he commanded us to pay attention to it. It is his word. I suspect the reason for this is not because we all need to keep a journal or a diary. Um, if you keep a diary, it has almost certainly been read by someone else, just so you know. Uh, So I hope there's nothing horrifying in it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, when he was converted, said that one of the great blessings of his conversion was that he no longer had to worry about the time-wasting and self-indulgence of keeping a journal. Now, I do know, actually, one of the godliest people I've ever known kept a journal. So there's nothing right or wrong about it intrinsically. It depends, depends who you are and how you use it and all of the rest. But without any doubt... One of the things that God was saying here, because the people, at this time in Numbers, you've had the first wilderness generation die, you had the second census, and so now this is the generation that's going across the border to the promised land. Without any doubt, what God is doing is he's saying this. Before you go into the promised land, you must review your history. You must remember what you have done and what I have done. You have to remember that or you won't be ready to go in. So before we go in, Review your history. It starts, your real history starts with redemption. Remember when you were in Egypt, remember when you were in slavery. Remember the Passover. Remember the substitutionary blood that was put uh, on the doorpost. Remember the angel of death that passed you by. Remember when I brought judgment on Egypt's gods. Remember that. That's where you begin your history. Your history begins with redemption. Your history begins with liberation. It begins with exodus. Your history begins and is bathed in mercy and grace. That's step number one. But also, your history begins with judgment on Egypt's gods. This idea will form a literary inclusio with the passage. You note that at the very beginning, it's, I brought judgment on Egypt's gods. The very end of the passage, it's about, get rid of all of the gods that you find in Canaan. That's the beginning and the end. The idea from beginning to end is, get rid of other gods where you, I showed you when I brought you out of Egypt the powerlessness of the superpowers gods, I reduced them to nothing. Where you are going, it's going to be the same. Where you are going, there are other gods, there are other idols, there are other deities. You need to remember that I destroyed Egypt's gods, and when you get to Canaan, destroy those gods too. There must be no religion that you tolerate besides the truth of who I am and what I have done. There cannot be compromise with other religion. There must not be compromise with other gods. There cannot be fellowship between Yahweh and an idol. Remember your history. I've already shown you who the living God is. When you get to Canaan, you're likely to forget Unless you remember day after day after day after day that the living God has already demonstrated his power and grace in your life. That's why you're redeemed. That's why you're going in. Do not compromise with the idols that you find in the land in which you're going. Or else, I will have to drive you out of the land the way that I'm going to drive the Canaanites out before you. Now, it is worth mentioning, of course, that... In Moses' context, they literally were worshipping idols, statues. Now, they were more sophisticated than to actually think that their statue was the God. Uh, You know, Isaiah and Jeremiah will parody his statues, rightly. um, But the people who were worshipping idols, they didn't believe that it actually was the God. They believed that it was the representation of the God or that the God lived inside of that form. So priests would put food before idols. And the food obviously was never eaten. What well, they did, well, the priests would eat later, uh, kind, of, kind of like leaving out milk and cookies for Santa Claus in some ways, uh, but not deceptive for the children. What they said was that the, the, the gods would eat the essence of the food. So the whole idea was that this idol represents the god or it becomes a form that the god's spirit fills, and the god consumes the essence of the offerings. So it wasn't quite as unsophisticated as just, just carving out you know a piece of wood and then actually thinking it was literally your maker or something like that. Okay. We jump a little bit too quick today to making idols things like um, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Although if that's your idol, how's that? <laughs> or your car. Or your degree. Or whatever, your power, your money. Yes, there are all of those idols that we need to be on guard against. Anything that puts itself in the place of God is an idol. As Calvin rightly said, the the human heart is an idol factory. We're making idols all the time. Sometimes out of abstractions like power, sometimes out of physical possessions like money or homes or, or whatever. But for Moses, it really was about religion. That's what the Lord was warning against. Remember God, past and present, when it comes to idols. And then he starts to go through some of these stages. And we won't go through every single one, largely because I have nothing to say about most of them. Uh, but in verse 9, you have Mara. You have, this is the place where there was bitter water. It's a place where the people were complaining. Nothing, nothing to drink. There's, there's no good water here. And the Lord, using the agency of Moses, purified the water, and the Lord made the water sweet. And then he led them to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Obviously, if you, if you start to run the numbers, 70 palm trees is not an awful lot of shade for the number of Israelites who came out of Egypt. So this is... This is, this is um, It's stylized. Twelve and seven and ten, your complete numbers, and so. So what you're given here is not you're supposed to say that there was actually literally seventy palm trees, and everyone got you know one square millimeter of shade. The idea is that this was an oasis. This is actually a restful place. This was a good place for people to be. Uh, They enjoyed being here. The Lord refreshed them at that place. Trees and water in the desert. An oasis. It, it really is a, a picture of rest. And then Sinai. The theophany, the revelation of God. The giving of the covenant. But also the golden calf. Rebellion and wickedness. The shattering of the covenant while it was being made. And of course you have all those tabernacle instructions for how it's to be built, then the golden calf, then the building of the tabernacle, all of which is showing that God planned to live with the people. The people rebelled. How can God live with an unclean, unholy, wicked people? Because of his grace. And so the tabernacle is, is the plan for God's presence of people is not jettisoned even through their rebellion. There's punishment, but there's grace. He is a gracious, forgiving God as he reveals his name to Moses after the golden calf. Then they build the tabernacle exactly as it was supposed to be. And in Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. You have all of the Levitical law given. You have the day of atonement. Then almost just just, just a little under one year, just, just slightly under one year, camped at Sinai, all that they experienced... The cloud moves and the people depart, and they go forward. Numbers 10. And they praise God. He is a great God. Here we go. Numbers 11. After three days, the people complained. You think, my goodness. I know we've already looked at this a little bit you know, in previous weeks. Oh, my goodness. They're complaining about water and food. They're saying they washed they were back in Egypt with all of their you know, onions and leeks and fish. Oh yeah, we had life pretty good in Egypt. You kind of, kind of forget the slavery. right? Kind of forget that, that the Lord heard their groaning as they called out to God in bitterness of soul in Egypt. Amazing how present-day complaining can cause you to look with rosy nostalgia at the past. Well, you were complaining then, too. Right. all of a sudden, it becomes a paradise. You know? so when you say, my goodness, when they, came out of, when they crossed the Red Sea, they, they were in the wilderness for three days and started complaining about food and water. They leave Sinai, and after three days, they're complaining about food and water. It's the exact same thing. And that's the point. It's the exact same thing. External law can't change a human heart. The Old Covenant, as long as it was outside, The human heart, as long as it was on tablets of stone, it didn't matter what atonement, it didn't matter what sacrifices were offered, it didn't matter how much glory God showed, the human heart hadn't changed one bit in that year at Sinai. They complained exactly the same way, about exactly the same things as they had before they came to Sinai, as when they left a year later. An amazing commentary on the human heart. And very easy for us to condemn. After all, our lives are infinitely harder than wandering around in a burning wasteland with nothing to eat or drink, right? Our, our, our standard of living, our comfort, is at such a lower position than theirs that we can scarcely imagine having it as good as they had it and complaining. When after all, we have it so much worse and our complaining is justified. Right? You know, what are they complaining about? Like, look at how bad we have it compared to them. No, the, the reality is we are very quick to condemn. And yet, as Jesus said in another context, on the Day of Judgment. If if anyone is going to rise up and point the finger at complainers, it will not be us pointing the finger at them. It will be them pointing the finger at us. We are the most comfortable people, literally, in the history of the world. We're the most comfortable people on the, on, on, on the planet today. And today, it's the most comfortable generation that's ever lived. To the point where, literally, I use that word advisedly, because I've been told sometimes I, I overuse it, but I mean it this time. Literally, what we take to be hardship, other people can't imagine as luxuries. It's an incredible society we live in. It's an incredible society that we live in where we take consumerism so much for granted as an inalienable right that we feel hard done by when somehow things aren't what we feel we're entitled to. But what we feel we are entitled to is utterly beyond belief in historical context in how the rest of the world lives. So they complained about food and water. After a year at Sinai, they obviously hadn't learned that God would provide. Now, they could have learned that God would test them over time. But they should have learned that God would, in fact, provide. Kibroth Hasava, the Graves of craving or when the people were complaining about food and God killed some of them. God does not suffer complaining forever. Here were people who God had been providing for marvelously well. He tested them for a time and they immediately turned against him. The graves of craving is what Kibroth Hatava means death because of craving. Kadesh. Kadesh is the place where the spies, where the ten spies are listened to and, and Caleb and Joshua are rejected. This was the place where they stood and had the opportunity to trust God and go into the promised land, and they rejected that opportunity. In fact, they said, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Declaring, God, thanks for redemption. We wish you hadn't redeemed us at all. This is one of the most wicked things that's said in the entire Pentateuch. Let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. God, all of that, the substitutionary blood, the Red Sea, the defeat of Egypt's gods and army, Sinai, tabernacle, glory. You know what? We're going back. We don't want to follow you anymore. What have you done for us? We were, happy, we were happier in slavery in Egypt than we are following you as our redeeming Lord. It was at Kadesh, when they absolutely rejected God's plan, that like God said, That's okay, fine. The next generation will go in, but you won't. That was one of those enormous moments in life history for those people. That was not just a small collection of moments that was a definitive moment in time where because of their persistent rebellion against god they forever forfeited the opportunity to go to the promised land of blessing then verses 37 through 39 they left kadesh and came at mount hor on the border of edom at the lord's command aaron the priest went up mount hor where he died on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year after the israelites came out of egypt Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. After 40 years, the very first high priest of Israel dies. Without being morbid. It is slightly hard to talk about a text where someone dies without mentioning death, though. The reality is every leader dies. Every one of us is going to die. Statistically speaking, if I hit the average lifespan, I've lived half my life. That's just math. Now, it's also quite likely that if I hit the, the average lifespan, I will not spend my last few years on this planet as mentally and physically healthy and strong as I am today. I mean, you can't improve this, right? <laughs> so you sort of look around and you say, you know, there's, there's, there's only so much time. There's only so much time. Only so many sermons to preach, which you are very thankful for, no doubt. Only so many classes to teach. Only so many conversations to have. Only so many books to read. We're all going to die. And all of your leaders and mentors are going to die too. For some of you, they they already have. Maybe not all of them. Some of you already know what it's like to bury people that you love. Some of you know what it's like to to look into the future, not as a prophet and not in a crystal ball, but, but to look into the future and know that um, there are a lot, lot, lot fewer years ahead with certain people than what there is in the past. A lot fewer conversations with certain people than what you enjoyed in the past. Even Aaron... The first high priest of Israel. The one who Moses spoke to and Aaron communicated to Pharaoh. The one who was there from the, from the very beginning, from the ground floor. The one who was there who went with Moses, who saw the miracles. The one who was there from the very, very beginning. The first one to offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. The, the, the first one, at this point, the only one in Israel's history who actually ever went into the Holy of Holies. He goes up on the mountain and he dies. That's going to be everyone that you know and respected and love. It's only a matter of time. And I say this and I, I, I say this reverently because I, I, I joke every once in a while, not usually with any success, but I, I you know, you know it, we we do love Pastor Sam. We do. Right, Pastor Sam isn't going to be here forever. He's not. So, so what are you going to do with this time with him? Right? Aaron dies. Sam will die. Even, even a rumor that I will. Your leaders are going to die. So is your life story... The story of following human leaders? Or is it the story of following God? Because if your life story is a story of following human beings, eventually it will all be taken away from you. But if your life story is a story of following God and thanking God, as Ephesians 4 will say, that he gives as gifts certain people in your life to help you grow on your path. So we're not walking this path in isolation. But there's another sense in which we walk together, but we still are individuals. And we fix our eyes not on Aaron, or Moses, or Paul, or your pastor, but we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Everyone else will die. Jesus died, but conquered death. And so we follow him. Aaron doesn't bring you to the promised land. Neither does Moses. Joshua, Jesus, does. So this is their journey. From life to death. Right on the border of the promised land. And they reviewed their history. And you should do the same. Their whole journey here. Egypt's gods destroyed. Destroy the religion of Canaan to Learn your lessons. Sometimes, To trust where God's taking you, you need to remember where you've been. You need need to recall the providence of God in your life. As individuals, we we all have our own unique paths. So do families, so do churches. Every individual church can look back at difficult times and glorious times. No church, no local church has the same experience. No human family or human individual has exactly the same experience. And so you can mark it here, they mark it through geography, where they've been. Maybe you can do that. Maybe there's been different places where you've lived in your life, different lessons where you've learned in those that you've learned in those different places. Maybe you can look at you know decades. You, know, you remember you know, the, the 1960s, or the 70s, or the, the 80s. That's the first one I remember. By the way, the eighties, nineties, uh, right? Or maybe you look at uh, your own life, and this this becomes one of those one of those very interesting things about getting older. You actually can begin to look at your life segmented into decades, like your life okay, in your your teens, twenties, thirties, eighties. What lessons has God taught you in the decades? of your life. You can look at jobs you've had, houses you've lived in, schools you've attended, whatever. But what are the markers of eras for you? Where has God brought you? What have you learned in those seasons? And remember, as you read this list, something something should stand out. You can learn lessons In different ways. Some of these lessons are learned through the painful tuition price of sin and rebellion. But learn those lessons. Learn those lessons of the past. Other lessons are lessons of blessing and sweetness and rest and refreshment. We'll learn those lessons too. Both the good and the bad in God's grace can be used to be redemptive, to bring you forward to where you need to be and to be the person that God wants you to be at every stage in the future. Now, there is one stop, though, that people will arrive at in different ways, but which is a place that we all need to get to. And that is the definitive moment of standing before Jesus Christ and not turning away. That's the moment that every single person needs to experience. The moment of seeing and receiving Jesus Christ. Whatever your career path is, whatever homes you live in, whatever education you do or do not you know, achieve or whatever, you absolutely need Jesus. You, you you absolutely need to come to a place where you recognize that you are lost without Him, that you are guilty without Him, that you are a rebel, justly deserving death without Him, and, and to come, and by the Holy Spirit, and by God's grace, to see the death of Christ on the cross as the great substitutionary sacrifice, Him dying, paying the penalty for your sin, Him dying in your place, offering you the exchange of Him dying for you so that you can live in Him and in His resurrection. And whatever pathway you take, that, that's, that's the one stop that every human being, it, it is the most essential thing. Seeing and knowing Jesus. This is Passion Week. Probably about 1985 years ago, Jesus was entering into the last week of his earthly life. And of course, his life was preceded by many events, you know, not least the incarnation and the going back all the way to the eternal counsel of God. We think of his birth, we think of his life, and then, you know, in passion we think of the triumphal entry and Gethsemane and, and, you know, the betrayal and the trial and the flogging and the mocking and the crucifixion as the Passover lamb. And, and so we mark, and, and as Christians, we remind ourselves, not just of our history, but of, but of redemptive history. This is what God is doing. That's what God was teaching the Israelites. Look, look back, look at what I am doing. I'm bringing you from redemption to promised land. Write this down, Moses. I command you, write this down. And as Christians, this is what we do. At Easter, and all through the year, is we, we remind ourselves, this is what God has done in redemption to glory. And it's all through Jesus Christ. Through everything that Jesus was and is, everything he said and did, all of his miracles, all of his teaching, always doing everything which pleased the Father. He lived a perfect life so that he had a perfect life to lay down on our behalf, dying in our place. And and so we we remember, we remember, we remember this Do in remembrance of me. We make ourselves remember what Jesus has done. And we remind ourselves that Good Friday and the crucifixion was not the last stop on his journey. Good Friday is only good because there's a resurrection coming. And so he goes to the cross where he dies in our place and he's buried in the tomb, but the tomb isn't the last stop. That's a pretty amazing thing. I mean, this text, this text here, Numbers 33, let's be honest, you, you would find it a lot more exciting if it said, and then they buried Aaron, and Aaron was 123 years of age, and then they started going, and then Aaron came back to life and said, hey, wait, I'll lead you in. You know, like, like I just conquered death. Let's go to the promised land together. Like, that would be a much more exciting story, but it's not what happened. He actually died, and he stayed dead. He was really dead. But so is Jesus. But Jesus really conquered death. And he came back to to real bodily life in a resurrected, glorified body. And and whereas this text ends with, with the high priest dead, not going to the promised land, the story of Jesus ends with the great high priest raised to life, the priest and sacrifice, both restored to glorious life, saying, follow me, I'm the only one who can get you in there. You know, you can't go to the promised land without me. You can't go to the promised land without me because I'm the only Lord and Savior, but also the promised land doesn't exist yet. I'm going to make it in the new heavens and new earth. I'm preparing it for you. There's nowhere you can go right now and see it. It's, it's, it's just over the horizon. Your, your path has a few more twists and turns and then your path reaches its termination point here in this life. But that's when it begins. That's when you're home. That's when you see it for the first time. That's when you see your Savior face to face. And so our journey in this life, will end. And all our relationships will be left behind. Only to be picked up again. In a perfect way. In utter glory and splendor and joy and love. Because of what Christ has done. So think of Christ. Christ. Make sure your life history is entangled and entwined inseparably with His. And live your life bravely and boldly in this fallen world. And prepare for glory. Because they do go into the promised land. And by God's grace, so will you. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.